And if you have your Bibles, take your Bibles and open them to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Yesterday we had class with some of the guys from the Spire. And uh, they were giving me a hard time yesterday. They said they were going to uh, sit down here on the front row with scorecards while I was preaching. I'm not going to lie. I've never been more relieved to see a front row empty in all my life. When I came in, I spot-checked Michael Morris to make sure I knew where he was sitting. So, no, we had a good time yesterday. It was a blessing to spend time with those guys and spending time working together around the Word of God. John Newton is known today as one of the great heroes of the Christian faith and the author of Amazing Grace, probably the most popular and most sung English hymn of all time. Those who know Newton's story know that this is a miracle of God, and that Newton himself was a man who never got over the amazing grace that God showed him in his own life. John Newton was born in 1725 in London, England. His mother was a godly woman who taught him scripture songs and Bible verses, but she passed away just before his seventh birthday. His father, a hard man and a sea captain, took Newton on his first voyage at age 11. And at sea, Newton soon developed a reputation as a vile and wicked sinner, who was later impressed into the Royal Navy as a midshipman. He hated it so much that he tried to desert the ship. He was caught and sentenced to 70 lashes, and then he was demoted to a common seaman. Eventually, he was able to negotiate a transfer to a merchant vessel that was headed to Africa, and on that ship, he amplified his licentious lifestyle. His later correspondence, in his own words, he said, not content with running the Broadway myself, I was defatigable in enticing others. And had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried all the human race with me. I had the ambition of a Caesar or an Alexander and wanted to rank in wickedness among the foremost of the human race. Appalled by his behavior, the ship's captain left him on the coast of Africa where he nearly died in the employ of a slave trader and his abusive wife. Later, he was miraculously rescued by a ship sent by his father to locate him and bring him home to England. And on his way home on board the Greyhound, John Newton's life forever changed. The ship was caught in a terrible storm, and Newton, who was a passenger at this point, was forced to pump water just to keep the ship afloat. Physically exhausted, he was eventually tied to the wheel in a desperate attempt to keep the ship pointed into the storm in an effort to keep it from capsizing. Desperate and fully expecting to die, Newton finally blurted out, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. He would later write, I was instantly struck by my own words. This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy in many years. This encounter with God on board the Greyhound transformed Newton, and his life was never the same. After a health scare eventually ended his career as a sea captain, he worked as a tide surveyor until the Lord impressed on him a desire to preach the gospel. He was eventually ordained and served the Lord faithfully as a pastor, abolitionist, counselor, and hymn writer for 43 years. And during those 43 years, John Newton was consumed with the grace of God. Tony Renke, in his work on Newton, states, For Newton, the Christian life could only be explained by God's sustaining grace. God saved his wretched soul. Grace sought him out. Grace removed his spiritual blindness and opened his spiritual eyes. Grace taught him to fear God. Grace relieved his fears. Grace led him to hope. The life and ministry of Newton can all fit under the banner of grace. God's abundance all-sufficient, infinite, sovereign, unceasing, and amazing grace. I'm thankful for grace. <laughs> I hope that you're thankful for grace as well. Today we're going to look at a man in Scripture who experienced grace and was transformed as a result of that experience. But before we look at our story, we need to set the stage. And before we do that, I think we need to ask the Lord to help us this morning and, and uh, seek the Lord's face in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, spend some time in your word this morning. I pray that you help me to rightfully divide the word of truth. I pray that today, Father, you would impress on us um, just how marvelous your grace is and how that that grace should transform us every single day. 
Pray that you would take these truths, help us to preach them deep into our souls, that we can walk out more conformed into the image of Christ than we were when we came in. We'll ask these things in your name. Amen. If you remember all the way back in 1 Samuel 17, David bursts onto the national scene in Israel when he fights the giant Goliath. Right? So the Philistines invade. Um, they're in the valley. The Philistines are on one side. The Israelites are on the other side. Goliath comes out. He is the giant, the champion, and the Israelites can't find anybody to fight him. David comes to visit his brothers. He sees Goliath, and he says, well, I'll take him. Right? And so David goes, and he gets stones, and he gets a staff, and he goes down into the valley, and by the grace of God, he prevails over Goliath, and he bursts onto the national scene. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, David, in his fame, there are songs written about him. And you remember the women of Israel saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And this causes envy to rear its ugly head inside of Saul and he begins to seek David's life. He throws javelins at David while he serves in the royal court. David flees into the wilderness of Israel and Saul pursues him in an attempt to end his life. Jonathan, Saul's son and David's friend. Remember, Jonathan and David, the Bible says their hearts were knit together. Jonathan, knowing and understanding his father's foolishness and knowing that David was the Lord's anointed, made a covenant with David in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 15 and 16. The text says this, But also thou shalt not cut off kindness. This is Jonathan speaking. But also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, everyone from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. And the chapter ends with this statement. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, forasmuch as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be between me and thee, and between my seed and thy seed forever. So Jonathan and David make this covenant together. But Saul continued to pursue David and to seek his life. And in 1 Samuel 24, we have the account where Saul pursues David into the wilderness. And Saul enters the cave to relieve himself. And David and his men are hiding inside of the cave, right? A little awkward. And so while they're in there, David takes the, the hem of Saul's robe and he cuts off the hem of Saul's robe. And Saul leaves and he has no idea that David has been there in the cave. And after Saul gets safely a few hundred yards away, David steps out of the cave and he addresses Saul and he holds up the hem of the skirt. And Saul acknowledges that David has acted more righteously than he has. And Saul asks David to make him a promise. It says this in 1 Samuel 24, 20 to 22. Saul is speaking. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established into thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swear unto Saul. So David makes a promise to Saul that he will not cut off his descendants off the face of the earth. In 1 Samuel 31, the last chapter in the book, the Philistines invade and Saul and his sons go and confront the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. And the battle goes badly. And Jonathan and two other of Saul's sons fall in the battle. And the Bible says that Saul is grievously wounded, right? And there's an archer that shoots and he hits Saul with an arrow. And mortally wounded, Saul drags himself away from the battle. He doesn't want to be taken by the Philistines. They do, he doesn't want them to be able to use him as a trophy. And so instead he takes his own sword and he falls on his sword and he takes his life at the end of the book. And after Saul takes his life, there's turmoil in the land of Israel. Because the faithful followers of Saul, they take one of Saul's other sons, a man by the name of Ishbosheth, and they anoint him as king over Israel. But the nation of Judah secedes from Israel, and they appoint David as their king. And for seven and a half years, there is conflict in the nation of Israel as the forces of David and the forces of Ishbosheth fight together for supremacy as to who will rule over all Israel. Eventually, Ishbosheth's followers wear out. And two of his captains take his own life, and they assassinate him. And David is anointed king over all Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. And David ruled over a united kingdom. So that is what has gone on as we reach 2 Samuel chapter 9. David is at the height of his power. He's the sole ruler of Israel, and he's flexed his military might by defeating the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. And in fact, if you look back at one chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 15, I think that this verse really sums up the state of Israel well. 
It says, And David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto all the people. So David, who is now king and at the zenith of his power, he remembers the covenant that he made with Jonathan and the promises that he made to Saul. And so it is with those promises in mind that we read 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1. And the text says, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David was committed to honoring his covenant with Jonathan. It's, I think that this is significant for three reasons. First of all, this requires intentionality. David could have assumed that there were none of Saul's family left, right? We say ignorance is bliss. So if David wouldn't have asked this question, he could have just assumed that none of Saul's descendants had survived, and he could have just let bygones be bygones. But he doesn't do that. He intentionally seeks out a former servant of Saul's household, Ziba, and he asks him, are there yet any of Saul's household that I may show kindness to? It requires intentionality. I also think that it's interesting because David appeals first to the house of Saul. He doesn't first acknowledge his covenant with Jonathan. He says, are there any of the household of Saul that I may show kindness to? Saul was David's enemy. Saul hunted David to every corner of Israel. Saul forced David to hide in caves. You realize, too, that Saul actually took David's wife away. And Saul, I mean, Saul's treatment of David is abysmal. And yet David remembers the promise that he has made. And even after fighting a seven-and-a-half-year war with Ishbosheth, it seems odd that David will be interested in keeping this promise, and yet he is. It's even kind of more surprising, too, when we understand the purpose of David's inquiry. He says that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. In the world of the Old Testament, it was very common when a new family came to rule over a country. They would find the previous family, they would track down every living descendant, and they would put them all to death. Because they didn't want anybody to be able to say, well, this person has a rightful claim to the throne. So they would hunt them all down, they would round them all up, and they would execute them all. So humanly speaking, we would read this, and when David says, are there any yet left of the household of Saul, we would expect the text to say, so I can put them to death. But that's not what the text says. The text says, are there any left that I may show them kindness for Jonathan's sake? His desire to show unmerited kindness to the family of Saul is overwhelming. And it really, sets the, it really sets the bar for the rest of the chapter, unmerited kindness. David reiterates, it's almost like his servants don't really believe him, right? So he has to reiterate this command to Ziba in verse 3. And the king said, is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? Notice also we are introduced to a new character, Mephibosheth. And we're going to see here that Mephibosheth is a recipient of marvelous grace. But before we see that, we see that Mephibosheth is helpless and hopeless. Look at how low Ziba sets the bar at the end of verse 3. And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on both his feet. Right? Ziba is not setting up David's expectations very high. He says, yeah, Jonathan has a son, but he's lame in both of his feet. This harkens back to 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4. It says this, And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So when word comes out of Mount Gilboa that Saul has died and Jonathan has died, the royal household is immediately set into disarray. And, and, and Mephibosheth's nurse, in an effort to preserve his life, she scoops him up and she is running with him out of the palace. And the text doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but we see that she, she falls and somehow she, she messes up Mephibosheth's feet and he is no longer able to walk. He's unable to help himself. He has to rely on others to provide for his needs. I see this in verse 4. It says, The king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Mephibosheth cannot live on his own. He cannot meet his own needs. He cannot provide for himself. So he has to live in the house of another. But not only that, Mephibosheth is living as in exile. He is in the city of Lodabar. In the Hebrew, this literally means land of nothing. 
The city was in that. If you look at a map of Israel, the city's on the outskirts of Israel. It's a small town in the middle of nowhere. It's incredibly insignificant. I can identify with this a little bit. I grew up in northern Wisconsin, an hour and a half north of Green Bay. So if you watch Green Bay Packers games, right, and like it's like negative 19, and you see all the crazy shirtless people out there anyway, I've lived an hour and a half north of that. The county that I lived in had more deer than people, right? And on the first week of deer hunting season, the public schools closed down so the kids could all run out into the woods and shoot stuff. I mean, that was the, that, that was the town that I grew up in. We had less than 2,000 people. Our town wasn't even a town. It was unincorporated. I mean, we lived in the middle of nowhere. And this is Mephibosheth. He's living as an exile. And this is more significant when we consider that he is the crown prince. He is in line as the son of Jonathan to inherit all the riches and the wealth of Jerusalem, to rule and reign as king. And yet, because of his exile, he is forced to live in the land of nothing, in a podunk town in the middle of nowhere. Mephibosheth is living as an exile. He's helpless and hopeless. But we see that David shows grace to Mephibosheth. I see five ways in this text that David shows grace to Mephibosheth. Look with me. Verse 5. Then the king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. David brings Mephibosheth back out of exile. Mephibosheth was in the land of nothing, insignificant, out in the middle of nowhere. And David goes and he finds him and he brings him home. He fetches Mephibosheth from Lodabar. Second, we see that David restores the land of Saul to Mephibosheth. Look at verse 7. And David said unto him, Fear not, I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. There are some obvious covenant implications here. right? So when the nation of Israel came into the promised land, what was it that God promised them all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15? He promised them a land. And the land was the covenant inheritance that God had promised to his people. And for an Israelite landowner, his land was the covenant promises of God that had been given to him. And yet when Saul died, Mephibosheth's land had been stripped away and given to another. The Old Testament prophets warned repeatedly against taking land away from those who were weak or poor or disadvantaged. And so David is acting righteously by granting Mephibosheth the inheritance that was given to his family by God. David restores to him the land. He restores his covenant inheritance. Third, David opens his table to Mephibosheth. Look at the end of verse 7. David tells him, And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. This isn't a one-time thing. David says, You will eat bread at my table continually. David is treating Mephibosheth as one of his own sons. He is treating him as a royal heir. And he is bringing this exile. He goes and he fetches him. He brings him back, restores him to his inheritance. But then he just doesn't leave him to fend for himself in the city of Jerusalem. No, he brings him into the royal household and sets him at his own table. And he says, you will eat bread at my table continually. Number four. David restores Saul's servants to Mephibosheth. Look at verse 10. Or look at verse 9. And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread at all way at my table. And Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So David restores Saul's servants to Mephibosheth. Not only does he give him the land and the covenant inheritance, he recognizes that Mephibosheth cannot work this land on his own. So he gives Mephibosheth the servants that serve the household of his father Saul, and he says, here you go, and they will make sure that you are taken care of all the days of your life. And finally, look at verse 13. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table. And he was lame on both of his feet. Mephibosheth moves permanently from a land of exile into the royal household, right? This isn't like a two-week visit. Mephibosheth doesn't go on sabbatical, right? It's not summer vacation. David moves him permanently back into the royal household. He takes him from a land of exile and brings him back into the royal city. This is marvelous grace. 
This is marvelous grace. And notice that Mephibosheth recognizes this, and he is overwhelmed by the grace that has been showed to him. Look at verse 8. And he, Mephibosheth, bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Mephibosheth prostrates himself on the ground before David. He falls on his face before the king. This is a position of reverence, a position of humility. Mephibosheth recognizes how truly unworthy he is, and he falls on his face before the king. Not only that, he refers himself uh, he refers to himself as a dead dog. In the Old Testament world, dogs were really looked down upon. All right, this is tough for me. I'm a dog lover. I have two labs at home. I almost put pictures of my labs up on the screen, and then I figured that all y'all would be distracted and not listen to anything else that I had to say, so I didn't do that. But I have two labs at home. I love my dogs. Right, but in the world of the Old Testament, okay, dogs were despised. They were scavengers. They lived on the street. They were not pets. People tried to keep them out of their houses. And in fact, if you remember, when David confronts Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and Goliath, this mighty champion, he looks out and sees this little shepherd boy coming with a stick and a few stones. What does he say? M-I-A, dog. Right? He is so insulted because he sees this little pipsqueak that he thinks is going to take him on. Right? So calling somebody a dog was one of the highest insults that you could offer in the world of the Old Testament. And Mephibosheth here refers to himself as a dog. And not just a dog, but a dead dog at that. Right? It's even worse than a live one. <laughs> so Mephibosheth is a dead dog. This is an incredibly self-deprecating statement. I think also it's really neat because there's a sense of irony here. Right? We told the story earlier of, of Saul in the cave. When David comes out, and David confronts Saul, right? Saul's a ways away, and David comes out with the hem of Saul's skirt, and he's calling to Saul. This is what David says. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. And now the shoe is on the other foot. Saul's descendant is now the dead dog who is bowing down before David the king. So there's a complete role reversal here. Whereas David before says, I'm the dead dog before Saul. Now, David is sitting in a place of exaltation and Saul's descendant is on his face before him, acknowledging the fact that he is a dead dog before the king. Mephibosheth is, un is markedly unworthy of David's grace and he knows it. Yet he accepts the grace that David bestows upon him and he thankfully embraces the change to come from a place of hiding to a place of honor. From a place of exile to a place of esteem. From rags to royalty. I think the second Samuel chapter 9 is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Like Mephibosheth, we were exiles and enemies living in a spiritual desert. We needed a king to seek after us. To diligently pursue us because we were not looking to be found. We were helpless and hopeless in our spiritual condition, and Scripture says that we were destined for death. And worst of all, we had no possible way to change our spiritual condition. But our sovereign king pursued us. He found us, and he brought us from a place of spiritual famine to a place of spiritual feasting where we can taste and see that the Lord is good. Our king also gave us a spiritual inheritance so that we can be with him for all eternity where we can enjoy him forever. He transferred us from this earthly kingdom to an eternal home when he delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. I believe that 2 Samuel chapter 9 is summed up well by Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. That text states, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That is 2 Samuel chapter 9 in a nutshell. What a glorious picture of the grace that Jesus Christ showed us. Mephibosheth was a recipient of amazing grace. 
And you're thinking we're done, right? But we're sorry, we're not done. We get, I mean, we could close our Bibles, right, and pack it up here and be finished, but we're not. Because there's more to the story of Mephibosheth that I want you to see. The story of Mephibosheth doesn't end here. The grace that was bestowed on Mephibosheth transformed him and it changed the way that he lived. He never got over it, even, even when he was wronged. Because you see, Mephibosheth was betrayed by a supposed ally. Flip over a couple chapters. Look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16. We talked a little bit last week about Absalom's uprising when we discussed Ahithophel. And so when Absalom chased David from the city of Jerusalem in the middle of the uprising, there's incredible turmoil throughout Israel, as you can imagine, right? Things are changing quickly and, and, and evolving at a rapid pace. Allies were now enemies. Friends were now foes. And it was very unclear right, who was on what side. And David flees Jerusalem to save his life. David fled just as Absalom was entering. And the text tells us that at one point, the forces of Absalom and David, there was one hill between them. And into this incredibly delicate situation, inserts Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant. Look with me in verse 1. And when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, and met him with a couple of asses saddled, and upon them two hundred loaves of bread, and an hundred bunches of raisins, and an hundred of summer fruits, and a bottle of wine. Ziba's service to David here is indispensable. Right? So David is leading his little ragtag band of followers outside of Jerusalem. No transportation, no food, no supplies, and then Ziba shows up on the scene. During his period of most intense vulnerability, Ziba brings transportation and food for David's followers. But then look down with me in verse 3. And the king says, where is thy master's son? He says, hey, Ziba, you're here. Where is Mephibosheth? If you remember, Ziba is Mephibosheth's servant. And so he asks, where is he? Where is Mephibosheth? And look at Ziba's answer. And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abideth at Jerusalem, for he said, Today shall the house of Israel restore me the kingdom of my father. Ziba betrayed Mephibosheth. He slanders him in verse 3. What he is doing here, what Ziba is doing, is he is accusing Mephibosheth of high treason against David of seeking to restore the Saul-like dynasty to the throne of Israel. What he is saying is that when David had to flee, Mephibosheth rises up and says, today's the day that we're going to put the family of Saul back on the throne. For David, this would have been betrayal of the deepest kind, especially after the overwhelming grace that he had showed Mephibosheth in sparing his life and restoring his covenant inheritance. So David issues a swift judgment. Look in verse 4. Then said the king to Ziba, Behold, thine are all that pertained unto Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech thee that I may find grace in thy sight, my lord, O king. So not only does Ziba slander Mephibosheth, but Ziba steals Mephibosheth's inheritance. We've already looked at the covenant importance that lied within the physical land of Israel. And Ziba here, through his duplicitous slander, has stripped away Mephibosheth's inheritance and taken it for himself. He has stolen what does not belong to him through his lies. Mephibosheth is betrayed. His own servant has turned against him and robbed him of the covenant blessings that had been restored to him by King David. He hasn't done anything wrong. Mephibosheth has not transgressed against David, and yet it is all pulled away. He finds himself destitute, a man without land, without friends, and without any means of providing for himself. So the question is, is how does one respond in such a difficult and tumultuous situation? Right? We go back and we read 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we say, praise God, we're thankful for grace. Right? And in chapter 9, David turns on the fire hydrant of grace, and it explodes everywhere. But now it seems as though the fountain of grace has all but dried up. So the question is, is how do we respond when it seems that the grace has gone? Does grace really transform our life? 
Or is grace just good when we feel like we have it? Right? That's the question that we have to answer. Turn with me real quick. 2 Samuel chapter 19 and verse 24. So we know the story. Absalom's revolt. Eventually Peter's out. Right? The forces of Absalom go and they fight the forces of David. David's forces prevail. Absalom, if you remember, has the incredible long hair. Right? He should be on a Suave commercial. And so he's, he's riding out, right? And he flees from the forces of David. He's on a donkey. And, and, his, and his hair gets caught in an oak tree, and he's swinging there. And Joab, David's lieutenant, hunts Absalom down and takes spears and drives them through Absalom's heart and kills him. And at the end of chapter 18, we see David weeping over his son. David is broken over his son Absalom's revolt, his death caused by David's own sin with Bathsheba. Then we come to chapter 19, and David's followers say, hey, it's time to head back to Jerusalem and take what is rightfully yours. And so David and his followers meet together, and they, they head back to Jerusalem, and they encounter several individuals along the way. And as David, enters, as David enters Jerusalem, he encounters Mephibosheth, and we read that account beginning in verse 24. It says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and had neither dressed his feet. That means that he probably hadn't trimmed his toenails. Basically, we can say that personal hygiene has gone out the window, right, since David left. So he had neither dressed his feet nor trimmed his beard, all scraggly, right? He has not washed his clothes. So he stinks. There's no personal hygiene, right? He's all scruffy. What he has done is as soon as David left Jerusalem, Mephibosheth just let himself go. In a sense, he's mourning over David's departure from Jerusalem. Um, and from the day that the king departed until the day he came again in peace. Verse 25, And it came to pass when he was come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said unto him, Wherefore, winnest not thou with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For thy servant... Got me on this one? Okay. Uh, where were we at? Verse 25. The king witnessed unto him, wherefore would not, not with me? Okay, verse 26. And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceive me, for thy servant said, I will saddle me an ass that I may ride thereon and go to the king, because thy servant is lame. And he has slandered thy servant unto my lord the king. But my lord the king is as an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in thine eyes. For all of my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king, yet Didst thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thine own table? What right therefore have I yet to cry any more unto the king? And the king said unto him, Why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I have said, Thou and Ziba divide the land. So we see here Mephibosheth's audience with David. We've already noted his physical appearance. Right? So as Mephibosheth, you can imagine as Mephibosheth comes walking down the stairs, that this is a pitiful sight. Right? We look at him. No hygiene, scruffy, stinks, right? And we look at him and go, ugh, right? That sense of mourning as he comes down the stairs. But we can also imagine that in David's head, if you remember Israel's history, this is exactly how the Gibeonites tricked Saul all the way back in Joshua chapter 9. David knows Israel's history. This is what the account says uh, in, in Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites, it says they did work wily, right? They were sneaky. And they went and made as if they had been ambassadors, and they took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent and bound up, and old shoes and clouded upon their feet, and old garments upon them, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went with Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of Israel, We be come from a far country, now make ye therefore a league with us. So the Gibeonites, all the way back in Joshua chapter 9, they had feigned like they were coming from a faraway country, right? And they dressed in old clothes. They had uh, all, of their, all of their old food, right? They had brought moldy food with them. And, and they faked like they were coming from a faraway away. And they tricked Joshua into making a treaty, a treaty with the Gibeonites. And David is no dummy, right? He knows Israel's history. And so as he thinks through this, he sees Mephibosheth coming down the stairs, a pitiful creature, and yet his heart, I think, wants to go out to Mephibosheth, but in his head, he's thinking, man, this is exactly how they got Joshua beforehand. And he doesn't know what to do. And David questions his motives in verse 25. He said, why did you not go with me? In Ziba's response to David's questioning, he says that he's betrayed in verse 26, my servant deceived me. 
For he said, I'll, I'll get you a donkey so you can ride and go to the king because he knows I can't walk. And then Ziba leaves Mephibosheth high and dry and goes to David and leaves Mephibosheth in Jerusalem. He also says that he makes it very obvious. He's slandered by Ziba in verse 27. He says, and he hath slandered thy servant unto my lord, the king. And we see David's judgment in verse 29. He says this, And the king said unto him, Why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I have said, Thou and Ziba divide the land. Humanly speaking, this is incredibly unfair to Mephibosheth. He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't transgressed. He has not committed high treason against David. He has been David's loyal servant. And yet now, his inheritance is cut in half, and it's given away to the very man who undercut him, abused him, deceived him, and slandered him to the king. It's unfair. I think, too, it's easy for us to look at David and say, what is David thinking? Right? How could David do this? But before we judge David too harshly, all right, try to insert yourself quickly into the mind of David. All right, Think with me. David knew that he, to one degree or another, had brought this calamity on the nation of Israel, right? He had brought the evil of Absalom's revolt on the nation through his sin with Bathsheba. So David is acutely aware already that he is responsible for everything that has happened. And in fact, we see several times in 2 Samuel 19 that David shows mercy on people that probably deserve to be executed. And the reason that he does that is because he knows that he is responsible for bringing that on them. And in this text, human evil, right? We look at the sin and the arrogance of Absalom. We look at the slander of Ziba. We look at the bitterness of Ahithophel. Human evil on one side. Righteous judgment on the other side. We read the prophecy of the, of, of the prophet Nathan, of the consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba. And we know that God is working out his righteous judgment on David. So human evil and righteous judgment have become intertwined in this whole episode. And all of the nation of Israel is forced to deal with the complexity of that situation and the fallout that has ensued. David's return to Jerusalem is also filled with confusion. Just days before, these people had pledged their allegiance to Absalom, and now David rides in, and they cheer as he enters the royal city. And in his, in his mind, he thinks, are these individuals really for me, or are they just saying what they need to say in order to save their own skin? Who is truly on my side? And then Mephibosheth comes and stands before him. And more ambiguity. Mephibosheth looks pitiful. And yet Ziba has inserted himself into this situation and saved David's life when he is at his most vulnerable. So David looks at these two men and he doesn't know what to do. So he does the best that he can. David doesn't want an investigation. He doesn't have time for one. He has a broken nation, a broken family, a broken heart to try to piece back together. And he doesn't want to make new enemies by prioritizing Mephibosheth over Ziba or Ziba over Mephibosheth. So he does what he thinks is just, and he splits Mephibosheth's inheritance down the middle, and he gives half to Ziba and half to Mephibosheth. But humanly speaking, we say this is unfair. Mephibosheth is truly loyal to the king. He didn't deserve this, and yet it happens. Mephibosheth is wronged, and we would expect that such poor treatment would lead to a response of anger or frustration. But that's not what we see from Mephibosheth in this text. Look with me in verse 30. And Mephibosheth said unto the king, Yea, let him take it all, for as much as my lord the king has come again in peace unto his own house. Yea, let him take it all. For as much as my king has come again in peace. This is an incredible statement that is filled with love. Even through his own unjust treatment, Mephibosheth cares nothing for his own inheritance because he loves King David so deeply. Yea, let him take it all. I think the question we need to ask is how is a love like this cultivated? How can Mephibosheth, even when he is wronged, even when it looks like grace has dried up, how can Mephibosheth look at David and say, yea, let him take it all? I think there's five elements in Mephibosheth's response that we can see that cultivate this type of love for King David. 
Look with me first in verse 27. Mephibosheth views David with great esteem. All right, look at verse 27. But my Lord, the king, is as an angel of God. He admires David. He holds David in great esteem. And that causes him to love David deeply. Notice also in verse 27 that Mephibosheth demonstrates humble submission to David's will. The very last phrase there, do therefore what is good in thine eyes. Mephibosheth doesn't push to receive his own inheritance again. Mephibosheth says, hey, this is what happened, but you do what is good in your own eyes. Humble submission to David's will. We also see in verse 28 that Mephibosheth is overwhelmed by unmerited favor. He says, for all of my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king, yet didst thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thine own table. Mephibosheth knows he is unworthy. He knows that he is undeserving. And the grace that David showed him all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 9 comes out here in an expression of overwhelming thankfulness for the grace that David has showed him. We also see that Mephibosheth surrenders his own personal agenda. Look look at the very end of verse 28. What right, therefore, have I yet to cry any more unto the king? He puts his own personal agenda aside. And he says, David, do what you feel is right. We also see that Mephibosheth is acutely aware of his own unworthiness. And I hearken back to 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 8 when he says, And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou should look upon a dead dog as I am? The unworthiness that Mephibosheth felt when he received unmerited grace from David, is evidenced here as well. And the sense of his own personal unworthiness causes him to have such a deep love for David that even when his own inheritance is cut in half, he says, oh, just let him take it all. Just happy that the king has come home. Mephibosheth was a man who never got over the grace that King David showed him. It transformed his life, and even when he was wronged, he still exhibited a strong and impassioned love for his king. Grace grabbed a hold of Mephibosheth, and it never let him go. So the question is, what's the point for you and me? What does the story of Mephibosheth mean for us? How does it impact the way that we live today? The one big thought, guys, my thesis, if you will, all right, my one big thought, that I want you to take away from today's message is this. Believers who have experienced the transforming grace of God must never lose their love for the king. Believers who have experienced the transforming grace of God must never lose their love for the king. So while Mephibosheth served King David, and what a privilege that was, you and I have a much greater opportunity We have the opportunity to both serve and love the king of kings, King Jesus. So the question that we have to answer is, how can we cultivate this type of a love for King Jesus? How can we say, as Mephibosheth said, oh, let him take it all. Because we're just happy that the king has come home. I want to take the five thoughts from Mephibosheth's address to David and bring them into our Monday to Friday 9 to 5. Because if we have experienced the grace of God, if it has truly grabbed a hold of our hearts, it has to transform the way that we live today. So let me give you five suggestions about how you and I, like Mephibosheth, can love our king like a dead dog. First, we need to admire our king. We need to admire our king. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says this, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Admire your King. Jesus Christ will be exalted. And Jesus Christ is coming again in victory. Revelation chapter 19, verses 13 through 16 
says, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. That's you and I, by the way. All right, the armies that followed in heaven in white horses, clothed in fine linen and clean. And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, our King will be exalted, and He is coming again in victory. And you and I, friends, we need to admire our King. When we fail to love, we fail to love our King when we lose our admiration for who He is. These are just a couple of texts. Go read the Psalms, right? The Psalms impress on us how great our God is. It increases our admiration for God. Reflect often on your king. Meditate on who he is and what he has done. And as you do, you will fall more deeply in love with Christ, our king. Admire your king. Second, submit to your king. Submit to your king. There are two ways that grace enables us to do this. Grace enables, it gives us the power to submit. And I see this in James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. It says, but he, God, giveth more grace. And what is the result of that grace that he gives? Well, in verse 7, he says, God resisted the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. So the grace of God allows us to humble ourselves before God. And then in the next phrase, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. So the grace of God, as he works for us and in us and through us, his sanctifying grace enables ourselves to bow our face and submit ourselves to the king. This is not our default setting. Pride is our default setting. But the grace of God, the saving and sanctifying grace of God, allow us to submit ourselves before the king. And I think that the grace of God also enables us to walk in obedience to God. If you have your Bibles, flip over quickly. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Familiar verses to us here. But look at the beginning of verse 8. For by grace. And then there's a couple of things that happen. Right? It says, for by grace are ye saved. And then look down in verse 10. For by grace we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So the grace of God enables us to submit to God. The grace of God also enables us to walk in obedience to God, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained. And the king has given us the opportunity to love and to serve him. And by his grace, he has enabled us to walk in the path that he has provided and given us the ability to grow into the masterpiece that he intends for us to be. Submit to your king. Third, don't lose sight of the king's grace. Don't lose sight of the king's grace. If you're still in Ephesians chapter 2, look back in verses 4 through 7. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. If you remember when we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 9, I gave you five examples of how David showed grace to Mephibosheth. Well, here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, I see five ways that God shows grace to us, how he demonstrates his unmerited favor. Look in verse 4. God was incredibly merciful to us. It says, but God who is rich in mercy. God was merciful to us. We were helpless and hopeless, just as Mephibosheth was. Yet God, by no merit of our own, showed us mercy. Second, God loved us deeply, even when we were unlovable. In verse 4, it says, For his great love wherewith he loved us. 
you and I have a tendency to be pretty unlovable on a daily basis. And yet, God, it shouldn't just be Brother Joe that's laughing back there, right? I mean, (laughs) it's all of us, right? It's all of us. We are all unlovable. And yet, God, in his great grace, loved us even when we did not deserve it. But notice also, he showed us mercy, he showed us love, but third, he brought us to life when we were dead. I see this in verse 6, and he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has made us alive. We were dead in our sins, and Christ has brought us from death to life. You and I were in a spiritual low debar. We were in exile We were away from the grace of God. We were away from the royal household. And yet God sent for us. He brought us out of our spiritual death. And he has brought us into spiritual life by his grace. It's only by the grace of God that we are brought from death to life. Look also with me in, um, look also with me in verse, uh, the end of verse 6. I already read it. But he made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus God not only raised us up from death, he also exalted us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And why did he do that? Look finally in verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. We are given a spiritual inheritance which is going to be paid out for all eternity. Notice that this inheritance is all based on the grace of God. It is nothing that we did. It was nothing that we earned. Friends, can I encourage you this morning? Never get over the empowering, transforming, saving, and sanctifying grace of God. Mephibosheth never got over it. And it transformed the way that he lived. And you and I, if we're going to cultivate a deep love for the king, we can never get over the grace of God. Number four. We need to lay down our rights before our king. Mephibosheth had a chance to push his own personal agenda. He had a right to his land, to his covenant inheritance, but he didn't press for what was his own. Rather, he told David, ah, let him take it all because the king has come safely home. We need to lay down our rights before the king. I think as Christians, especially as 21st century Christians here in America, we have a tendency to cling to our rights. We have a tendency to cling to what we feel that we are owed. We have a sense that we're entitled to something. We deserve for our life to go better, to be easier, to not have struggles or heartache. We deserve to get and keep a good job, right? We deserve to have children. For some of you, you deserve to have more mild-mannered children, right? And so we deserve these things. We deserve not to get COVID-19. We deserve not to face the Dr. Pepper shortage that is coming this summer, right? We, we deserve these things, right? We feel like we are entitled to them. And yet if we, I just, I just, want, I just want my Dr. Pepper. That's all I want, okay? Um, But when we cling to what we believe is owed to us, there's a couple things that it does. It saps our spiritual strength. Because what it does is it seeks to put God into a box. It seeks to make God a divine genie who exists to grant us what we want. And that, my friends, is not the God of the Bible. If we come to Jesus for an easier life, then God is not our God. Comfort is. And if we come to Jesus for money, then he is not our God. Money is. We have to come to God because of who he is. Because God is the prize and his glory is our goal. And when we cling to our rights, what it does is it leads us to false doctrine and a lack of biblical thinking. We read it earlier today, but Psalm 115 and verse 3 says, God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. God is God and we are not. Period. So to cling tightly to our personal rights, it saps our spiritual strength, it leads us to false doctrine, and finally it destroys our love for Jesus. 
Because what it does is it turns me into a self-lover rather than a God-lover. And it derails my passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ. Friends, don't cling to what you think you are owed. Because it all belongs to Jesus anyway. It's all his. Let us say, yay. Let him take it all. For the sake of loving our king more deeply. Lay your own personal rights before the king. And finally, never lose sight of your own unworthiness. Are you still in Ephesians chapter 2? Look with me in verses 1 through 3. It says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. That means that we were underneath the condemnation of Almighty God. We need to recognize who we were before we were saved. This tells us that we were dead in our sin, helpless and hopeless. But not only that, we were being pushed into the world's blueprint. The world has a way that they want people to live. It has an agenda. And before we were saved, we were pushed into the world's blueprint. We were living according to their agenda. And because of that, we were active agents of the devil. We lived only to gratify our own sinful lust. And because of that, we were doomed and damned to hell for all eternity. And when we understand who we were, I think that we can honestly acknowledge that our debt to God is infinite. We are worse than dead dogs. And we are desperately in need of saving. We've done far worse than Mephibosheth. And I think one way that we can continue to cultivate a deep love for the king is to keep a real view of both ourselves and our Savior. So to recap, how do we foster love for the king? How do we love like a dead dog? Admire your king. Submit to your king. Don't lose sight of the king's grace. Lay down your rights before your king and never lose sight of your own unworthiness. Believers who have experienced the transforming grace of God must never lose their love for the king. We truly are all dead dogs. We're worse than Mephibosheth in a more desperate state and in need of a savior. And our savior came, praise God. We have been loved. We have been set at the king's royal table. We have been transformed by grace. And the transforming grace of God needs to grip us deep in our hearts and generate within us a profound and passionate love for King Jesus, the king of kings. John Newton never got over the grace of God. And on his deathbed, he stated, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Friends, we are great sinners, but we have a great Savior. Never get over the grace of God and never lose your love for Christ, your King. May God help us to revel in His grace and fall more deeply in love with the King this week. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word today. This has been challenging to me. I pray that this morning the truth has been rightly divided and that you would help us. We, we are overwhelmed by the grace of God. I pray that you would help us to never get over it. I pray that you would help that grace to course through our veins, to run deep into our souls, and then it will generate within us a deep and passionate love for the King. We need your help. We need your grace. For just a couple of minutes as the piano plays, I would encourage you just to do business with God this morning. If you have been challenged in your own heart, if you feel...